Number 856. Thank you for singing that song. I requested that uh, we sing that song tonight. As we talk about what we're going to cover tonight, I want you to know that if it had not been for the Protestant Reformation, you and I would not be able to sing that song tonight. The message in that song was foreign to Christians before the Protestant Reformation. And when I say Christians, I mean the a visible church of God on earth, what was called Christendom. Now, we have covered the persecuted Christianity, the time when Christianity was pure, but it was persecuted, and how it was basically unified during this period of time. That changed then when we went to imperial Christianity. It was still unified, but it was beginning to be corrupt. It was run by the Roman emperor himself. He proclaimed himself head of the church. And it caused, as we studied, many, many departures from Scripture. And they left the Bible, and they left what God said, and they changed the structure of the church. Then we talked about Christendom. And Christendom was this period of time when there was this holy Roman Empire where the Pope actually ruled the world as a military, political, religious leader all in one. And he had his military muscle which started with Charlemagne. And they enforced the laws of the church on people who had no interest at all in following God. Now what we're going to talk about tonight is this new time. The church, the power of the church, the absolute dominance of the church over every aspect of your life had been established. And that's what we call the dark ages in history. But it's about to change. There are about to be some things that are very, very different. And as we look at this next section of history, we're going to cover the Reformation, the Restoration, and then modern Christianity, what we see and find today around us, why it's that way, and what God tells us about Christianity as we see it in the world today. So let's talk about the Reformation. In the Reformation, there were four big questions that were re-answered. And when I say re-answered, these are four huge questions, spiritual questions, that the Catholic Church had answered one way for a thousand years that were going to be answered differently. And we're going to find that they're answered differently because for the first time in generations, people had access to the Bible. And when you have access to the Bible and you read what the Bible says, you answer questions differently than if you don't know what the Bible says. Okay? There are many of us in this room, I was visiting right before services about my beliefs. And you know what? My beliefs in a lot of things have changed. I don't believe near the things I did when I was 21 years old. Why is that? You know why that is? Because I've studied the Bible a whole lot since I was 21 years old. And I've found there's a lot of things I misunderstood when I was 21 years old. If I didn't have a Bible, though, I'd still believe the same stuff because I wouldn't have what I know. Just what I'd been told all my life. Here's the four big questions. Number one, how is a person saved? 
Catholic Church had an answer to that, but it was different than the answer we find in the Bible, and it was different than the way the Reformers answered that question. Question number two, what or who is the final authority in religious matters? How are we going to know? You know, in America today, and I'm not going to get too far off on this, but truth is not truth anymore. Everyone believes, well, you can have your truth and I'll have my truth and somebody else can have their truth. And the reality is most people don't understand even the concept of truth anymore. Who is the final authority? Who has the right to say this is true? Where do we go to find that answer? The Reformers answered that differently than the Pope did. What is the church? What is the church? The Reformers had a very different answer. Do you know what the church is? You know, when I'm traveling, I'll tell my wife, well, as I come through Denton, I'm going to stop by the church on the way home. Well, what I mean is the building where we go to worship, right? But you and I all know this building is not the church, right? This build, there's nothing holy about this building. This building gets holy when God's holy people show up here, but it's not the building. There's nothing holy about this building. You see, the church, we're going to find, is the people. I'm getting a little ahead of myself answering these questions. The last one, what is the Christian life? What does it mean to be a Christian? I think we've got a lot of confusion in the world today about that. We'll talk more about that tomorrow, though. So... The Reformation began in earnest, and there had been lots of movements and things and lots of boilings, but it began in earnest with a guy named John Wycliffe, or Wycliffe if you prefer that pronunciation. He was British, and he was a professor at Oxford. Now, Oxford used to be a religious university. It's not today, but it used to be a religious university. And he had this idea that everyone should have a Bible in their own language. And you don't need a priest to understand the Word of God. Do you believe that? I believe that. They fired him from a religious university for this. They fired him. And he said, oh yeah? Well, I'll just translate a Bible into the English language. They called it the vulgar language the language of the people, the vulgar tongue. And they didn't want the Bible in the vulgar tongue. In 1380, he finished the New Testament, and in 1382, he finished the Old Testament. And they branded him a heretic and put out a death warrant on him for translating the Bible. Think about that. He died before the Pope could kill him. So you know what they did? They dug up his body and burned it and spread the ashes in the Thames River. That's how much they hated this guy. For what? For that. For what every person in this room believes right now. They dug a man's body up and burned it and spread the ashes in the river because they hated that so bad. Unbelievable the freedoms that we have in America. By the way, just another little aside we couldn't have America and the American Constitution if it wasn't for the Reformation and the changes that happened during this. We, maybe we'll have time to talk about that a little bit. After they killed him, there was another guy by the name of John Huss. And he was influenced very much by the writings of Wycliffe. 
To him, the gospel meant not just spiritual freedom, but political freedom. Because they were under the bondage of the church at that time. And he asserted that no pope or bishop had the right to take up the sword in the name of Christ to enforce the laws of God. He said some radical things. He said stuff like that we should pray for our enemies and bless those who curse us. That we should obtain forgiveness by repentance and not by money. Radical, crazy things. You know, for saying that, the Pope made an interdiction against Prague where he was teaching at Charles University. And you can go there today and see this bridge and see the university where he taught at. And in 1412, he refused to appeal to the king. You know, many times when the Pope would put out an interdiction against someone or an area, or he would put out a papal boule, or bull, as we would call it today, against someone, sentencing them to death, they would appeal to the king to protect them. He wouldn't do that. He said, I will only appeal to Jesus Christ, and I will trust in Him alone as the supreme judge. When he said that, the emperor at the time, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire said, you know what, I think you're right. I think we need your ideas presented to the council of the church. And I will guarantee your safety if you'll come do that. So he said, okay, I'll do it. And he showed up and he presented his ideas. And they condemned him as a heretic. And then the Pope says to the emperor, he says, you know what? Promises to heretics are invalid. And the emperor said, you know, that's right. And so they arrested him. And they put him to death, and the students that he had revolted, and so they brought in soldiers and established martial law and killed a bunch of the soldiers. When they went to kill this man, they burned him at July the 6th, 1415. And his name Huss, actually the last name Huss means goose. And what he said to them was this. He said, you may cook this Huss or this goose, but after me will come those you cannot stand against. He was ready and willing to die. And he did. He was put to death for this. Then something happened that wasn't religious in nature, but it had a dramatic impact on the spread of ideas. You see, up till this point, if you preached a sermon and you had a lot of influence on a sermon or on people through your sermon, your influence was only to the people who heard you and the people that they told about your ideas. If you wrote a book, you could write it, but only the person who had what you wrote could read it unless they made copies of it. And if they wanted copies of it, you know what they had to do, Trent? They had to write it down, write copies of it. That's the only way they got the ideas out. It was hard to spread ideas. But you know what? This guy, Johann Gutenberg, invented a printing press. And for the first time in history, you could make copy after copy after copy after copy of something. And they would all be accurate, and they would all be perfect, and you could do it over and over and over and over. And that's what they began to do. They began to make printing presses. You know what the first book ever printed on a printing press was? It was the Bible. 
called the Gutenberg Bible. He printed 180 copies. They also called it the 42-line Bible because every page had 42 lines exactly. Okay? There are still 48 of those Bibles in existence today. And uh, if you ever get a chance to go to a museum and see one of them, I encourage you to do that. It's very beautiful type and all. But what this did is this made it possible for the reformers who were going to come after Wycliffe and Huss to write and have those writings printed over and over and over and over and over and over and just spread throughout the whole area. And lots of people could read them. And lots of people could understand as people began to become literate during this period of time. So, the next guy we need to mention that comes along in in the early 1500s, late 1400s, is a guy named Erasmus. And Erasmus, a lot of times, is not considered one of the reformers, but I believe he was a very pivotal, important reformer. And his idea was that people should have not just the Bible and not just the Bible in their language, but they should have as close to what was originally written as possible. And his idea fell into the category of a stream is purest at its source, right? And so he had some wealthy benefactors that supported him, and he traveled all over Europe finding the oldest handwritten copies of the Bible that he could, and putting them together into a text so we would have the most original, the closest text we could have to what was actually written by the apostles. Does that sound like a good idea to you? Man, I think that's a great idea. He was also very critical of the Catholic Church. He was critical outwardly in some of his writing about some of the things that were involved in the Catholic Church, so much so that some of his contemporaries later charged him with laying the egg that Luther hatched. That's what they said. They said, he laid the egg that Luther hatched. He was, and when Luther began, he was very, uh, very much in favor of some of the things that Luther was writing. And he wrote in favor of Martin Luther early on. Later, they become very bitter enemies because he won't join Luther's Protestant movement. And actually, he dies as a Roman Catholic. He spends his whole life as a Roman Catholic. He believed in changes, and he believed changes needed to be made, but he believed Martin Luther was doing it wrong and was going to split the church, which ultimately, I believe, we'll see did happen. Martin Luther, I disliked this man intensely. Martin Luther called him a viper, a liar, and, quote, the very mouth and organ of Satan. Whew! <laughs> That's pretty strong rebuke, isn't it? Okay, But this guy had some very strong things to say back to Martin Luther. If we have time, uh, if you're interested in that, maybe after church we can talk about him a little bit more. Martin Luther, the angry German monk, he is the one that is credited with starting the Reformation. And you know why it's called the Reformation? Because his idea was that the church, which was the Catholic church, the church has gotten corrupt and we need to reform it. We need to change things in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is still the church, but it's just corrupt now, and we need to reform. We need to change some things to fix the Catholic Church. 
The thing that really got under his skin was indulgences. You know, just being honest with you, I think that would get under my skin too. The idea that you could buy forgiveness for a sin before you committed that sin. Horrific idea. Martin Luther was an interesting character. When he was very young, he had a friend who was killed by a strike of lightning. And so Martin Luther was terrified of thunderstorms. He had a great fear of thunderstorms. And one time when he was a young man, he was caught out and a thunderstorm came up and he was terrified and he thought he was going to die. And he made a bargain with God and he promised God, if you'll deliver me from this storm, I'll be a monk. Broke his daddy's heart because he was a brilliant man. And his dad expected him to be a lawyer and go into politics and all. But true to his word, he lived through that storm and he became a monk. And he became a monk and a priest. And he began to teach people and do the sacraments for people. And yet he was racked with guilt inside over his own sin. He was just tortured by guilt over his own sin. And all the descriptions that I've read of him throughout his life, he really struggled with the idea that here I stand as the church giving sacraments, the grace of God, to people who have no access to God and they come to me to get that and I'm corrupt myself. Just ate him up. Well, he was literate. He could read, and being a priest, he had access to the Bible. And so he read the Bible, and he studied, and he read the book of Romans. And he learned out of the book of Romans that salvation is by grace, and that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation. The penance isn't the power of God to salvation. The Pope isn't the power of God to salvation, but the gospel is. People didn't know this. They hadn't had Bibles. And so he began to preach that. He began to get very popular in his area because guess what? People loved to hear the good news. The message that they could be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then John Tetzel came to town. And he's selling indulgences. And people are just going by the droves and giving their money. And he's just overwhelmed by that. And he writes out his 95 thesis. And he goes and nails it to the door of his church in Wittenberg, Germany. And these were 95 things that he said the Pope is wrong about. But they really broke down into two particular categories. Number one, salvation is by faith. It is not by works of penance. It is not by money. It is not by rosaries. It is not by the Pope. It is not by the church. It is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what salvation's by. And number two, that the final authority is the Bible. It's not the Pope. The Pope doesn't have final authority. Well... You think this got him into trouble? Yeah, got him into big trouble. They call him before the Pope to give account for the things that he was teaching, and they allowed him to teach. So he had a debate with a guy named John Eck, and he and John Eck debated for 18 days in front of the council. And they debated the things that Martin Luther was teaching and Martin Luther was speaking against the, uh, the indulgences. And John X said this. He said, 
How can you question indulgences when the Pope says they're okay? And Martin Luther's answer was, who is the Pope to do this? The Bible is the authority. And John X said, the Bible, pardon me, where'd you get that? You sound like Huss. And we're going to do the same thing to you we did to Huss. They gave him 60 days to recant or to be excommunicated and to be killed. When they were leaving, Martin Luther was kidnapped. He was kidnapped actually by a friend of his who was a, a uh, German political leader, and this guy kidnapped him from the people that he was with in masks, had his guys go kidnap him, and they took him off and hid him in this guy's castle. And he hid in this castle for a long time, and he began to write, and he wrote tracts, and guess what they did with those tracts he wrote? They printed them on Gutenberg's press, and they spread them all over Germany and France and Switzerland, and they just flooded that whole area with his tracks. And stories are that you would see men out plowing in the field with a track of Martin Luther's in one hand. And they were spreading this message. He wrote a track by the name of the Babylonian Captivity. And what he said was, instead of being, uh, of the church up being upheld by the Pope and the papacy, the church was actually held bondage by the Pope and the papacy. So the Catholic Church responded by putting out their own tracks. And they said, there is a wild boar loose in the kingdom of God. And that's the way they, they described him. And so he responded to that by saying, oh yeah, the Pope is the Antichrist. You think it was getting heated and ugly and difficult? They issued a papal boule which said, we're going to kill him. They said, in fact, this, this law said anyone can kill him anytime they see him and there will be no consequences to you. Okay? You can kill him. When he got that, you know what he did? He said, they burned my papers, I'll burn theirs. And he burned it in a public display. You think this guy had some courage? Would you have that kind of courage to stand against a false religion like that? That was a tremendous, tremendous courage required. After he did that, uh, Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, said, you're a devil in monk's clothing. And his answer was this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, uh, by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Can you say amen to that? Amen. You agree with that? I do. I believe that. What courage that took knowing that by saying this, he's going to be charged with treason excommunicated from the church and being told that or the whole world be told that they can kill him on sight now these four questions we don't have time to go into a deep study of these maybe y'all can do a series on these after i leave okay but this is a wonderful series and wonderful things they taught that salvation is by faith that we're saved by faith. You know, the Bible teaches that, that we're saved by faith. 
okay, that we're not saved by the Catholic Church. We're not saved by penance. We're not saved by purgatory. We're not saved by paying money. We're not saved by doing rosaries. We're not saved by doing our Father prayers. We're not saved by any of that stuff. We're saved by faith. They said that the authority is the Bible and not the Pope. For a thousand years, it's been the Pope. And if you disagreed with the Pope, you're likely to die for it. But no, the Reformer said it's not the Pope, it's the Bible. It's the words of our Christ and His apostles. They said the church were the born-again people, not people who were born into. You see, the idea about what the church was up to this point is that the church was the hierarchy of the, the Catholic system. And all the people were just the people. They weren't the church. The church was the hierarchy. It was the authority structure of the Roman government. And the church is what saved you, not Jesus Christ. The church, though, the reformers said, no, the church is not the building. The church is not the hierarchy. The church are Christians. Saved people are the church. Do you all believe that? I believe that. And they said spiritual life. Spiritual life is not some spiritual, mystical sacrament, but it's a personal relationship, Jesus Christ. I preached at home last Sunday. And my son, Jacob, and his girlfriend were there for the weekend. I want my son to believe in Jesus. I can't believe for him. Do you know I can't? I can't. As much as I might want to believe for him, I can't. It's a personal thing between you and God. You can come to this building and sit here your whole life, every Sunday. And if you don't personally believe in Jesus Christ, you're not saved. You're not right. In the Catholic Church at this time, that wasn't true. You got grace by taking the sacraments. You got grace by the priest putting you in a right relationship with God. It didn't matter that you believed in Jesus. It mattered that you did the things the Catholic Church told you to do. The Reformers said, no, that's not right. Spiritual life is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I have to show you this picture. This is actually, it was painted by Pierre Legros, okay? And it is in the Jesuit Church of Rome today. And this picture has right up here in the corner, that's Mary, okay? And she's got a cross in this hand. And in this hand, you can't see it very well, but she's got a lightning bolt in that hand. And right down here are Martin Luther and Huss. And down here in this corner is a little angel with the book of life in his hands. And he is tearing out the page that has Huss and Luther in that book. You think these people didn't hate the reformers? They absolutely despised them. It wasn't enough to kill them. They wanted them to go to hell for what they were doing. Now... The Bible does teach salvation by faith. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the Bible answer to that question number one. Question number two on authority. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. You know what you'll be judged by? The words of God. 
in the Bible. That's the final authority, and I don't have a right to change that. Do you? Does anyone? Does the Pope? No. That's what Jesus said. The church are the saved. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And our last question there. Oh, before I get to that last question, I wanted to talk about faith alone. Martin Luther is well known for saying sola fide, which means faith alone. Solely faith, only faith. By faith alone. And many of the denominational churches in this town will tell you that they believe in faith alone, just like Martin Luther did. And I want you to, tell, want you to know that Martin Luther did say that we are saved by faith alone. He did say that, okay? But you have to understand the context in which he said that. Because when Martin Luther said by faith alone, he did not mean faith that is disobedient to God. He did not mean you're saved by faith, but you don't have to obey God. That's not what he meant. What he meant was you're saved by faith, and you don't have to do what the Pope says. You don't have to do penance, and you don't have to pay money, and you don't have to do your Hail Marys. That's not what saves you. You're saved by the gospel. You're saved by faith alone. Faith without the works of the Catholic Church. Faith without buying an indulgence. He did not mean you were saved by faith without being baptized. He did not mean you're saved by faith without obeying Christ or without repentance. He didn't mean any of that. He just meant that you were saved by faith without the works of the Catholic Church. Jesus demands obedient faith. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. And Paul says, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that do what? Obey him. That's what the Bible said. And those are the things that Martin Luther said also. For this for to this were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. You see, that's what being a Christian is. It's following the steps of Jesus Christ. Now, there was another guy who was more similar in his belief system to most of us. It's a guy by the name of Zwingli, okay? And Zwingli met Erasmus and was deeply influenced by him. And so he began to study the Bible. Now, when he was young, he had some black marks on his name. He was wild. He fathered a child out of wedlock. And he was a man of the world in every respect. But he was greatly influenced by the, by the words of Erasmus. And he began to study the Bible and memorize the Bible. He memorized it in Greek which was not his native language. Can you imagine going, you know what? I want to know the Greek. And I'm not only going to know it, I'm going to memorize it. He had a little different approach to, to uh, the gospel and the Bible than Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this. He said, anything is okay unless the Bible explicitly condemns it. Zwingli Flip that over, and Zwingli said, you have to have specific Bible authority for anything you do. So it's not allowable unless the Bible specifically authorizes it. 
Now, I don't know where you are personally in your understanding of Scripture. We might have some of both. Some people here tonight who believe a little bit of both of that. I don't know. But he was very, very strict. And he began to do something that was, had not been done publicly in centuries. That is, he took the book of Matthew and stood in front of his congregation and he began to preach the book of Matthew. Now, a Catholic priest is not a preacher. Catholic priests don't preach. You know, they have books that they read out of and they say certain things and the audience says certain things and they say their job is to give the sacraments. Their job is not to preach. They don't preach sermons. This guy did. He actually stood up and taught the Bible to the people who were listening, who had been forbidden to know the Bible for years and years and years. And he rejected everything that was not authentic authorized by the Bible. Around that time, there was this group called, they called them the Anabaptists. Anna means re, and Anabaptist was rebaptizers. And there was this guy named Conrad Grable. And what happens when people get a Bible and they can read it and they begin to understand, they begin to have some different ideas than people have told them. I have an uncle uh, had an uncle. He's passed away now, my uncle Kenneth. And when I was in college, I wrote him a letter back before email and before we had cell phones and stuff. I wrote him a letter and I said, Uncle Kenneth, I understand you have some unusual beliefs about angels. I had been told he believed some different things about angels. I said, I want to ask you about that. Would you tell me about angels and what you believe about angels? I don't remember his answer, but I remember this. When he wrote me a letter back, he said, Dear nephew, you will have unusual ideas too once you start studying the Bible for yourself instead of just listening to other people. <laughs> I remember that well. And you know what? He's, he's right. You learn things. Conrad Grable read the Bible and he said, wait a minute. Baptism isn't for babies. Baptism is for repentant believers. And adults are repentant believers. Babies can't be repentant believers. And he began to talk to people about that. And there were a group of them that came together and decided, you know what? That's true. That's right. We shouldn't be baptizing. We need to be baptizing adults. Now, that's a radical idea, isn't it? Okay? It's not radical to us, but it was to them. Because for a thousand years, the Catholic Church made you baptize your babies. And their idea was this. The church is the state, and the state is the kingdom. And so, if you have a baby and you don't baptize that baby, you're just giving birth to a bunch of little heathens. And the last thing we need is a world full of little heathens. We want them all baptized into Christ. The Catholic Church found out he was teaching this. And they confronted he and his followers, and they told them, you have one week to baptize your children or we'll kill you. Okay? Zane, you've got a baby back there. Has that baby been baptized? Nope. What if they kicked in the door tonight of this church building and they said, that baby's going to be baptized tonight. And if you don't, we're going to kill everyone in here. What would we do? Would you let them baptize the baby? Man, 
I mean, that's not as easy a, an answer as we would. You know, we can sit here going, well, that wouldn't happen. I'd say, no way, you get it. You know, but I'm going to tell you something. If they're going to kill your, your wife, they're going to kill all the elders in the church. If you don't let them baptize, what's it going to hurt to baptize your baby, right? Does it hurt anything? That was hard. And these guys met together and they said, what are we going to do? And George Blue Rock stood up and he said, Conrad, I want you to baptize me for the remission of my sins as an adult. What do you think Conrad did? I would think first he'd go, oh no, <laughs> what do we do now? You know what? They went down to the river and not just him, but all the rest of them were baptized for the remission of their sins as repentant adults. And then they took off and they fled. They scattered and they ran to try to stay alive. And you know what? The Catholics started hunting them and they caught Felix Mance first. And they said, you like water? Let's take you to the river. And they baptized him until the bubbles stopped. They killed 5,000 of these Anabaptists. 5,000 of them. Because they believed in baptizing adults. Can you imagine? Two of the guys who were Anabaptists at the time, you've probably heard of, maybe not them, but their followers, Menno Simmons and Jacob Amon. The Mennonites were those who followed Menno Simmons, and the Amish were the ones who followed Jacob Amon. And these were people who organized these Anabaptist groups where they were at under persecution and were willing to die for the truth that they found in the Bible. Now these, they weren't just, it wasn't just baptism that they were different about because these people here were different in the fact that they were communalists. They lived all together for their own protection and they were also pacifists. They didn't believe in war or fighting in any way. Okay, but those, those two groups still exist today. Then came along a guy named John Calvin. John Calvin is probably the most influential of all the reformers. John Calvin was converted by reading Martin Luther's writings. And at age 16, he went to college. He was extremely bright. He was hired by Geneva to be a professor of Scripture. And he, he wrote, by the at time he was age 24, actually, what are called Calvin's Institutes. And it's several books. And what he did was this. He went back, he was a voracious reader, and he read all of Augustine's writings. And he was very influenced by the ideas of Augustine. And he wrote his Calvin's Institutes of Religion, which really popularized the ideas that Augustine had taught several hundred years before this. Now, the guy who was the main preacher in the area, the main priest in the area of Geneva, who was actually a follower of Luther, he told John Calvin, we need you to stay here and we need you to preach and lead the church in Geneva. And John Calvin said, he said, I don't want to do that. He said, I have my studies. And the preacher replied to him, cursed be your studies. We need you to stay here and lead the church. And so John Calvin did. And he became the dictator, a religious dictator of the city of Geneva. And he tried to do what the Catholics had tried to do, and that's establish the kingdom of God on earth. And they would fine you if you missed church. You ever miss church? 
How do you think that would go over if we started fining people who miss church? <laughs> Probably have a little better attendance, wouldn't we? I mean, he made it illegal to dance and to gamble, and all the vices were illegal, and they would fine you or punish you. You know what else he did? He would kick people out of the town. He would banish people if they disagreed with him. And not only banishment, but 57 people in four years were executed for heresy because they disagreed with this guy, including one that if you're interested in studying about this, look up Michael Servetus. Do some research on Michael Servetus. Uh, he was basically murdered as a result of his disagreement with John Calvin. It was a terrible, terrible thing. John Calvin codified the teachings of Augustine into five things. We call it TULIP. And they called it TULIP because the guy who mainly fought against this, or the most famous guy who fought against this doctrine, was a guy from Denmark. And so they used TULIP as a clever way to kind of gouge at this guy but his teaching was total hereditary depravity and that is you were born wicked you're so wicked there's nothing you can do about it you would never choose God under any circumstance you are totally depraved number two unconditional election when God decides to save you there's nothing you can do about it you cannot resist there are no conditions God just saves you number three limited atonement and there's some question about how much Calvin believed this, but the idea is this. Jesus only died for saved people. God only loves saved people. And if you're not saved, it's because God hates you and wants you to go to hell. And Jesus' death was only for you if you're saved. Irresistible grace. You can't resist the grace of God. And finally, perseverance of the saints, which means once you come, you can never leave. You will never walk away from God. Once God has got you, He's got you. And you can't sin so as to lose your salvation. If you were to become so rebellious that you would sin enough to lose your salvation, God will kill you and take you to heaven so you won't lose your salvation. And that was his doctrine. Now, a guy named John Knox takes this and makes it into what we call Presbyterianism today. And in England, you know who it became in England? Have you ever heard of the Puritans? That's the Puritans. They got their doctrine from this guy right here. Now, this main opponent of his, Jacob Arminius, uh, he claimed that man is created in God's image. Do you believe that? Because we're created in God's image, we have a free will, and we have the right to accept or reject the free offer of salvation that comes from God. Do you believe that? Now, there are things that Jacob Arminius taught that you would not agree with or you would not believe. But if you had to be in one camp or another, you had to be a Calvinist or an Arminian, you would be an Arminian. This church is not a Calvinist church. Okay, The teachings and elders, if I'm wrong, you can correct me right now, but this is not a Calvinist church, is it? Okay, This church does not teach or accept the doctrines of Calvinism because they're not true according to the Bible. Then along comes this guy, Henry VIII. You know, there's even songs about him, right? Henry VIII was a vicious, immoral, rabid Catholic. This guy, because of his opposition to Martin Luther, the Pope gave him a name. He called him, quote, Defender of the Faith. In fact, the monarch... The king, King Charles, in 
in England now carries that name still, quote-unquote, defender of the faith. Now, he doesn't like that name, but he still bears that title, okay? This guy wanted a divorce from his wife. Her name was Catherine, and he'd only had daughters, and he wanted a son. So he appeals to the Pope, and the Pope says, no, you can't have a divorce from your wife over that. And he says, oh, yeah? Well, I have found a document that forbids the king of England to be in league with any other foreign power, and the Vatican is a foreign power, so we're not in league with you anymore, and I'm head of the church in England. And so he called it the Church of England. To placate people, he's the one who allowed Wycliffe's Bible to be published. Because a lot of people, can you imagine... All of a sudden, all these people have been Catholic all their lives, and now all of a sudden, the king's going, no, we don't listen to the Pope anymore just because he wanted to get a divorce? That caused problems. But it was dealt with by giving people, excuse me, an English Bible. John Wesley, he was a member of this Church of England. In fact, he lived his entire life as a member of the Church of England. He never left the Church of England. There have been a lot of famous people who've been members of the Church of England. Now, if you go to Canada, it's not called the Church of England. It's called Anglican Church, but it's the same one. If you come to the United States, we don't. have you ever seen a Church of England? It's called Episcopal. You ever heard of Episcopal churches? It's the same church. They call it the Church of England over in England. This guy was, and he with his brother Charles were disgusted when they went to college at the immorality of the people who claimed to be Christian. And so they started doing Bible studies off campus, just in their house where they lived, and teaching people what God wanted them to do and how they should live morally and the type of lives they ought to live and what the Bible said about that. And they developed a real specific method of Bible study and they began to teach that to other people who went out and did Bible studies and taught other people and they went out and did Bible studies. And the people who followed their specific method, guess what they called them? They called them Methodists. Have you ever heard of a Methodist church? Is there a Methodist church in this town? Yeah? The Methodist Church here in the United States is in trouble right now. They've just split over whether or not they'll support LGBTQ. And they'll ordain openly gay and lesbian and transsexual priests and, and leaders in their church. He would have never, he would have rolled over in his grave if he could have understood that people who would follow his Bible study practice would do that. The next person of interest to us is this woman named Bloody Mary. You ever heard of Queen Mary? They called her Bloody Mary because she was a rabid Catholic. And what's going on in England is you have a Catholic and then you have Church of England. Then the Catholic and the Church of England. The Catholic and the Church of England running the country. And every time a Catholic comes in, they kill a bunch of Church of England people. And every time a Church of England comes in, they kill a bunch of Catholics. And then you got the Protestants who don't like any of this. And there's just a lot of bloodshed. And, and she decided she was going to get rid of the Protestants. Now, there was a guy, his name was Thomas Cranmer. And Thomas Cranmer was the, um, he was a, a great leader and a very important man in the Catholic Church in that area. 
but he recanted his Catholicism and became a Protestant. And then he recanted his Protestantism and became a Catholic. And then he recanted his Catholicism and became a Protestant again. And when she comes on the scene, she is going to kill everyone who's not a Catholic. And she rounds this dude up and says, okay, buddy. And they give him a paper to write and sign to recant his recantation of his recantation of his recantation. And he says, enough is enough. I'm not going to do that. They said, we'll burn you to death if you don't. And so they put him to the stake and they burned him. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And if you can see in this picture, that's a picture of him tied to a stake with the flames around him. Look at that hand. You see his hand sticking out there? Historically, what he did when they burned him is he took his hand that he had signed that recantation with and he said, you are the hand that offended, you will burn first. And he plunged it into the flame. I tell you these stories, brothers and sisters, so you'll know that these people suffered for Christ. And it's easy for you and I to sit here in our comfortable air-conditioned padded seat churches and throw stones at these people. But they went to the mat for the Lord, and they had things that were wrong with them. They weren't perfect. Martin Luther hated Jews. Martin Luther said it's fine to steal all their stuff and run them out. He, I mean, there were some terrible things wrong with some of these guys. But they took some very courageous stands for Jesus Christ. Now, Queen Elizabeth comes along. She's religiously moderate, and she begins the colonization of America, and she sends people to America. And you know who comes to America? Whole bunch of Puritans. Whole bunch of them. There were just about 100 the first time, went to Plymouth Rock. But after that, there were upwards of 30,000 Puritans came to America to get away from all this stuff that was going on. King James... I wish we had time to talk about him. There's a lot of debate about whether or not he was a homosexual. I don't know. People argue both sides of that. But he's the one who gave us the authorized King James Bible. He was a Protestant, but he enforced some specific parts of Catholicism, including transubstantiation. Can you imagine if you came to church tomorrow here and the elders had set up a statue of Mary up here in the front, and they had the deacons walking up and down the aisle swinging incense. Would you stay? If you did, you'd probably say something, wouldn't you? Yeah. That's the kind of thing that was going on. It was a, it was a tremendously difficult time. These Puritans came to America fleeing persecution, but you know what they did when they got over here? They did the same thing that John Calvin did in Geneva, the same thing that the Romans did, the same thing the Catholic Church did. They said, we're going to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And you know how they did it? They tried to force everyone to do the things. You know why that failed? They had strict moral it failed because of teenagers. Some teenage girls had a Haitian slave who taught them witchcraft. And you've heard of the Salem witch trials? They falsely accused 200 people, I believe it was, of witchcraft. They killed over 20 of them and two dogs for witchcraft. Terrible, terrible things happened as a result. I, I wish we had time to go into all of this. But here in America... 
This is where our history, when we study history, leaves Europe. And we don't study a lot about Europe. And there's one other thing I want to mention to you that happened. Over in Europe, they began what was called the Thirty Years' War. And the Thirty Years' War was a terrible war. It was the bloodiest war in Europe in history until World War II. 35% of everyone in Germany was killed during this war. It was a terrible war. And you know who it was a war between? Catholics and Protestants. Catholics and Protestants. And they slaughtered each other like there was no tomorrow. Finally, after 30 years of war, they came to a place called Westphalia and they signed an, a peace accord. And in the peace accord, what they said was this. You keep your territory, we'll keep our territory, and we're just going to tolerate each other. We're going to let you believe what you want to believe and we won't kill you for it. And you let us believe what we want to believe and you don't kill us for it. And so all of Northern Europe became Protestant and all of Southern Europe became state Catholic. Okay? And this was the first time in history that religious tolerance was legislated. When I say religious tolerance, I mean tolerance of differences within the beliefs of Christianity. This was the first time that had been legislated and was allowed. And that happened January the 30th, 1648. The grand experiment failed. We've already mentioned that. And this reformation here in America, all the division, all the different churches, they sent people to America to escape the persecution where they were. And guess what they brought with them? All the division and all the trouble and all the conflict. And if you hated Presbyterians when you were in Europe, guess what? You hated Presbyterians when you got to America. And if you hated Anabaptists in Europe, you hated them in America. And there was tremendous division and they would all get in their own little groups and have their own place where they, they had their own religious laws and the states would enforce those religious laws unless you were just a rogue and you didn't believe anything. And then they sent you to Rogue Island, which has become Rhode Island today in America. You know, all of these things happened throughout the world, but they happened here and they're what formed us. The, the idea of tolerating different religious beliefs that we enjoy the freedom here in America to believe what the Bible says without being persecuted for it. You've enjoyed that all your life. We may be losing that, but up till now we've enjoyed that. That came from this stuff right here. By 1800 in America, the frontier spread. So did the religious convictions of the settlers. You had Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, Amish. And by 1800, there were some 125 distinct denominations here in the United States. Now, let me close with this. This is what we've covered so far. We started with the establishment of the church. We've come through all of this. We hit Erasmus, Calvin, Zwingli, Henry VIII, Luther, and the division spreading to America. And I want to tell you that tomorrow we're going to talk about the Restoration Movement, which is different than the Reformation Movement, and then how that affects us. Jesus Christ said this prayer, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. I'll tell you, it's good that we're not killing people for what they believe today. That's good. But the plan of God was not to have 
hundreds or thousands of divisions within his body. That was never the plan of God. It was not what God wanted. And I, I can remember it's been years since I've seen them, but there used to be advertisements. Join the church of your choice. Do some of you remember seeing those? That's not a biblical idea any more than the Pope is. God wanted his people to be united. And we're going to talk about that, that effort to unite the body of Christ tomorrow. Thank you so much for your attention. And I want to close this just like we've closed the others. You can be a part of the kingdom of God today. You know what? These reformers gave a right answer. The right answer is you're saved through faith, an obedient faith to Jesus Christ. You can be baptized into Christ tonight if you haven't been. You can be a part of this great kingdom of God, which will never be destroyed no matter what happens. If you're not right with God, please let us assist you while we stand and sing.